episode 14 of the Water Break podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to have a panel of three guests share their lessons learned and wastewater wisdom that they've picked up over the years. One of our returning guests is Jim Huckel, who is the City of Flagstaff Water Reclamation Plant Manager. He is a certified wastewater level four operator in Arizona and a class one certified operator in Illinois with 37 years experience in wastewater. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Okay, we also have Dave Axon, who's returning to our podcast. Dave is the owner of Water Resources Management, Inc. and one of our probiotic solutions reps. Dave has a class A operator license in wastewater and has a class two license in distribution in Missouri. He also has a class one and K wastewater license and class A water supply license in Illinois with 40 years experience in wastewater. Good afternoon, Dave. Good afternoon, Heather. All right. And new to our podcast is Jason Jones, who is the executive director for the Rural Water Association of Arizona and process control and equipment specialist for CPN, which stands for Construction Product Marketing here in Arizona. He has experience as a superintendent, utilities manager, and operations supervisor, water, and sewer. He's also a level four operator in wastewater and a level three in all the other water disciplines. With over 20 years of experience, he excels in resolving employer challenges with innovative solutions, training systems, and process improvements, proven to increase efficiency, customer satisfaction, and the bottom line. Welcome, Jason. Hey, guys. Welcome. Hi. I am very excited to have the opportunity to talk with all three of you about uh, troubleshooting wastewater systems and their issues. I'm sure you have plenty of war stories and lessons to learn to share. And for our our listeners, you'll also want to stay tuned for our Wanda's Water Tidbit at the end of our program, where we share fun and quirky trivia or information on water. All right, gentlemen. Now, I wanted to start off with the discussion about, you know, the first things you guys do in the morning when you come in as an operator. Like, what are the things that you want done at your locations before you start your day? Somebody has to make coffee. Coffee. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Coffee. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> but the, I think the second thing that I usually do is, or at the same time as the coffee is making, is I will go over into the skater room and just start running through some of the overview skater screens just to make sure everything's okay. And then check the alarm system from overnight to see if there were any other issues. Got it. Yeah, and just kind of adding to what Jim is talking about as well. First and foremost, I've been about a two years, two and a half years, um, not operating a plant physically. But I will tell you, one of the great things that I, I really loved instituting first thing in the morning was operator meetings. And so we would have folks who would come in and essentially we have our coffee, as Jim said, and we have folks who would check out what's going on with the different alarms and what have you. But then we would sit down and talk about uh, some of the goals, not just for uh, the day, but just for the week. And, I, you know, these are kind of things to help get everyone moving in the right direction, get in the right headspace and making sure that if there are any questions or any resources that they need, we have the uh, tools and things we need to get to 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 our guys and make sure this thing happens today whatever project that is. All right. Dave, how about you? Yeah, you know, basically on what both of these gentlemen said, you know, the first thing I look for is is my processes to make sure they're all operating uh, properly, that all the equipment is operating properly, and that there's really no issues with process control, and then uh, go from there. And something, Jim, you'd mentioned as well, when I was involved in the safety meetings, we always had, or morning meetings, we always had safety moments. 
hey, remember this, or this training is coming up. Uh, I think that's essential as well, just as you said, Jason, to keep everyone in the right headspace for the day. So after you've had your coffee and you've had your morning meetings, wh- what do you do next? Well, uh, basically, you know, w- w- one of the things, you know, uh, sampling needs to happen. Uh, sample the processes, check lab results for previous samples that were run. Weather is always a concern as far as what's coming. And, you know, we're going to get rain, we're going to get a lot of rain or uh, that type thing. And personnel, make sure that you know, all the personnel are going to show up that need to show up. But you're, you're saying people don't show up? Uh, sometimes people don't show up. That's right. That's right. And if you happen to be the director, then you it's it's on your lap <laughs> and you need to take mm-hmm. care of it. Right. Well, and that happened to me during COVID. One of my oh. one of my staff members, because we divided it into teams. So being that I was the most experienced, I went with the least experienced. And that person had family issues and also had a couple of COVID scares. So I find myself from going back from being a manager, going back out and doing plan operations. And I, mm-hmm. I can tell you one thing, I truly do miss being back just doing plan operations again. Life was so much simpler, whatever you were just out there checking the plant, you know, oh, oh look, the blanket's starting to come up. I'm going to go increase the waste and go check my numbers in the lab, you know. And, and again, that, that part has always been fun to me. Uh, the management mm-hmm. side is sometimes a little bit more boring. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I still operate from time to time and I enjoy it and I hope to do that as long as I'm doing this. I think it's good to do that. That's kind of how I relax. I enjoy the results of that and seeing a nice clear effluent. It kind of keeps me in check there of what it's really all about. And and as far as management, yeah, sometimes that's just not, a lot of times it's not fun. <laughs> it's not not glorious. No, it's oh. not glorious. It's not fun, but 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 yeah. but it's an important part. It has to be done because, you know, a, a, a good running facility is definitely going to start at the top, and everything goes from there. At least that's been my experience with it. Yeah, I would say probably the worst part about management is having to do discipline. Yeah, yeah. It, it takes you know a, a bad employee takes ninety percent of your time, and it was it was like I said last year during COVID. It was fun to go out and be able to mentor a younger staff member because she had only been in the field for maybe a year and a half and, uh-huh. and and to watch her grow over the last year, whenever she was working with me. And, and now she's, you know, I went out, we did mechanical and electrical and I was showing her all the safe ways to do it. And now she, she's starting to lean towards becoming an electrician, which is kind of cool because wow. you know you're a part of that. You know, one of the biggest problems that I have found is complacency. I mean, people can be trained, they're trained how to, I've trained a lot of people on how to operate these facilities, but I found that with some of them, if they're not watched, or I don't mean just stood over and watched, but I mean just checked on, you know, if, if, if people aren't checked on from time to time, they, they, they slip into complacency and they they don't do such a good job and they forget some of the things that they learned that they should do it's and and that's it's easy to do that in a wastewater plant because it is the same thing every day but that's when you get bit when you you get into that routine because that's when something 
extra special is going to happen and you're not going to notice it or be ready for it. I'm sure both of these gentlemen have run into that problem. Jason, you mentioned one time, uh, do your eight and hit the gate. Right, right. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, I'll I'll start off by saying this. When I first got into the industry, so, and it was funny as you were reading through the uh, uh, bios, I heard 37 years, 40 years. And boy, I was thinking to myself, man, I definitely am the young man on the uh, totem pole here. Uh, also, also thinking to myself when I when when we were writing the actual bio, I was like, man, I've been doing this for twenty years. Wow, this this seems like forever. But I guess the point that I was trying to make is that when I first started in this industry, we had some of what I would call the older old heads. Hopefully, I don't offend anyone with that. But these guys have been working at the plant for almost twenty five years. And uh, they did have that mentality, do your eight, hit the gate. Hey, we know all the right buttons to press. We know what each light means. And we know how to prolong it for the next shift so the other guy can deal with it, right? You know, I came into a culture like that initially. And one of the reasons why I ended up where I am today is because I just pressed through and wanted to learn. I was eager, just like the young lady who Jim was talking about. Someone took me under their wing and decided they wanted to teach me. And... Um, you know, and as I grew in management and grew in the field, taking a lot of that culture with me wherever I went and managed and uh, just making sure that, you know, one of the things we did, we, one of the reasons why we had the morning meetings was mainly so that everyone had a voice uh, to keep people from co- going complacent and to keep people from becoming borderline resentful to having a job. The reason why uh-huh. is, is just remembering why we do what we do. And those morning meetings gave us an opportunity as a team to just kind of bond and come together to talk about all our all of our successes and give some of these folks who have been there a long time to have a voice to voice out some of the things they've dealt with over the years and make them feel like the younger generation isn't coming in and taking over and uh, and, and, and creating a, a really good uh, energy there within the group and then using that as a means to help keep people interested in what they're doing on a day-to-day basis because you can make it fun and, and it can be something that well, at the end of the day you come in and if you don't aren't putting out fires which i'm going to say this and maybe jim you can attest to this i don't want to say 75 to 80 percent of most wastewater treatment plants they're in reactive mode because a lot of times we've 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 we're taking over plants that people have done their eight and hit the gate and so when uh-huh. you go to these places you have uh plants where folks are now gotten caught up. Now they're doing what's called proactive maintenance and being proactive. And that can be fun in itself because now they're they're not responding to emergencies. Now you're having fun. And I will agree with Jim. I love operating. I love being out in the field because you feel like you've done something throughout the day. I'm not saying management, you don't feel like you've done anything, but you, there's a lot of politicking, a lot of uh, making sure that you're saying the right things, human resource, mm-hmm. <laughs> ethics, things of that nature. So there's a little tidbit there. Well, yeah. and, and to Jason's point, whenever I first got to some of the plants that I've worked at, you know, you come in and, and you're starting from scratch. They have no preventative maintenance. They have no predictive yeah. maintenance. So you start doing vibration analysis and oil analysis. But the first thing you have to do is send the employees back to the manuals and go, yep. hey, you know, when are we supposed to be changing the oil? How often are we supposed to be greasing it? At one facility that I worked at, they said, well, we know what we need to do. And I'm like, well, what does the manual say? Oh, we don't pay any attention to the manual because we know what to do. And I'm like, don't you think the manufacturer of the equipment knows better than you? Don't you think they've tested that? So they know whenever it's due for maintenance. And some of them, it took a little bit longer. 
some of as as uh, Jason said, the old heads, they're like, well, this is the way we've been doing it for years. And I used to know a fire chief, and he goes, anytime somebody tells me this is the way that we've been doing it, then I knew it was time for a change because nobody's really looked at it in years. So yeah, yeah. And again, equipment fails because we're not doing the proper maintenance on it, or or we're not taking care of it the way that we want to take care of it. And what I try to teach all my staff is treat it like it's your house. You treat it like it's your house and you take ownership of it that way, you're going to try to take care of that stuff to the best of your abilities so that it lasts for a lot longer. And again, it makes your job a little bit easier because you have less maintenance to do and it's a lot more fun. And then to learn about complacency, where I see it the most is in safety. And, and mm-hmm. you know, whenever people yeah. first start out, they're very, you know, they're really scared about working here and blah, 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 blah. And then after a year or two, you know, that starts to wear off because, oh, I do that every day. Oh, I do that every day. So it, it gets more challenging over time to make sure that the people are staying safe. And, and usually somewhere between, you know, four and eight or nine years, they're their most dangerous. And I tell my staff that all the time. And also with, with the, the maintenance, documentation is so important. And, and I, I guess I walk around <laughs> like a, I preach to these guys, please document, document what you're doing, what you're fine, you're, anything you're changing. We need documentation because you're not going to remember it in six months or nine months or whatever that may be. And, you know, documentation is so important, but it just seems like a lot of people don't want to do it. They don't want to document it. Yeah. Well, they'll, they'll just remember it. I mean, I'm, my first job uh, was to do as-builts and go around and check all the equipment to see if it was really what it said, and I guarantee you, none of it was. Okay. And you know, it was the more experienced operator. I'm like, okay, you can you walk me through this? And he's, oh yeah, we moved this line, you know, later, and then we put in this valve because of this, and this happened. And here's all this historical knowledge. And he was retiring in the next year. Right. Well, yes. Well, see, with some people, they may know, they might know, and and they're okay mm-hmm. with that. But it's like, no, we all need to know because what happens if you know, if something happens to you or whatever, you know, it, it, <laughs> that you don't live in. A yeah. Vacuum. We all, you know, we need we need things documented so we know what's going on. Well, and, and documentation could be as simple as an email. I have my staff send out an email if they get called in after hours, so that way, whenever other people come in in the morning, they can see what happened overnight, or you know, hey, we made this new change at the plant, send it out in an email. Email never goes away and, and explain what you did, you know, or if there's a problem, all of that. Do- again, documentation is huge. And as I like to tell my staff, if it's not documented, it's not done. That's right. That's If, it, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. I agree with that. I remember a lot of changes we made. <laughs> and, and those, like you said, the emails, the historical part of it, it's so integral, especially when you're going to go inspect something in the future. So with that being said, guys, I mean, this was a question for thought for for us as well. If you don't mind me asking, Heather, how do you I mean, <laughs> we talked about documentation stuff. What about CMMS programs? I, I tend to like those. What about you all? I would agree. Um, we've been working on one at my current facility and I did one at my last facility. The fun thing about it is, you know, you really don't get the use out of them until you've been doing them for about three to five years because you need that previous data to help you predict what's going to happen into the future. So a lot of that time is spent 
the first three years is just trying to get into that rhythm of doing work orders and, and documenting what you've done with the equipment and preventative maintenance. And, right. and then you start to see the benefits from that in that three to five year range and out into the future. And, and, but the hardest part is convincing people that, you know, hey, we got to do this for three years before we see anything. But that's no different than if you go into a new plant and you're looking at the data and they don't have any, because I've started a lot of plants that don't have any data. And, yeah. and you go in and you're like, well, where's all your data? Well, we ran mixed liquor, you know, once a month. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, and, and we wasted we wasted 19 inches over here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And you the sit plant, there, you the go. The plant smells good. Yeah. Well, I went out and looked at <laughs> it. Of course that. Of course, that is legit, though, Jim. Like, the plant does smell good. Yeah. You know, that does yeah, yeah. smell good. They all ourselves, smell right? good. <laughs> yeah. well, Sometimes we, gooder than others. <laughs> we, we had, I once worked at a plant where we spent uh, $15 million to upgrade the plant. So we were walking through with a city council member. And by the time we got to the end of the tour, she goes, I don't care what you say, it still stinks. And I'm just like, okay. Because <laughs> what else do you say to that? I'm like, what? Yeah. Do you realize what we do? Right. right? It could be a lot worse. Yeah. Oh yeah. All right. And that helps us segue into the next thing is when it is a lot worse. When you have those system upsets, and you've got to recover and stuff like that. I, my my favorite story, and, and it happened at my current workplace. Um, I came in <laughs> normally. I get in around five, between five and five thirty. So I walk in and every alarm in the plant is going off. So I walk into the control room, look at the SCADA and sure enough, everything's an alarm. And I'm like, what's going on? So I decided to start, we have tunnels where I work at. So I started walking down the stairs and I'm starting to walk into the hallway and I turn the corner and I look and there's, we have another tunnel at the other end that goes down another 16 feet. It was two feet above the floor. And I went, wow that's not good so i turned around and one of my operators had just shown up i said hey just go call everybody and tell them to come on in and then i walked outside and the primaries were flooded about a foot and a half to two feet above the primaries so i'm sitting there and i'm taking pictures and i'm texting my boss and i go it's bad (laughs) so, so he comes in he goes that was a bit of an understatement don't you think he goes, how long before you think you'll get back online? I'm like, oh, we'll be online before the end of the day. We just need to get everything pumped down. And at the time, I didn't realize that Flagstaff didn't have any big pumps in town. So we had to call all the way down to Phoenix and get pumps up. But by 10 o'clock that night, we had all the equipment, most of the equipment back online. All the motors that got flooded, we had replaced by Friday. So this was a Tuesday morning. By Friday morning, we had all the motors in. And by Friday afternoon, we had the plant completely back up online again. But we had flooded tunnel that was probably about 250 yards long with all the primary pumps, grip pumps, blah, blah, blah pumps, just all the way up past the light bulbs, all the way coming up onto the second floor. So how, how, how I'm just curious, how did the tunnel flood? I mean, I mean, and is there anything you can do to prevent it from happening in the future? I'm just curious about that. Well, what had happened is we had had somebody in doing um, skater work. And they were uh-huh. working with one of our project managers. And okay. somehow, before they left, they turned off the alarm system. And and, and again, we went, uh, uh, okay. And, and they said, well, we didn't turn off the, the whole alarm system. We just turned off the primary effluent pumps. And it, it was a perfect storm because 
the PLC in the in the primary effluent pump station had faulted out. And we all know PLCs fault out, but it's pretty rare. So it just happened to be on the night that somebody turned off the alarms. Oh. And they're oh gosh. Yeah. And 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 they were telling me, they're like, well, it doesn't matter that PLC faulted, you would have never got the alarms. I'm like, no, the high level float goes down to the headworks and comes through a completely different system. And they went, oh. So yeah, you, yeah. you ruined their scapegoat hmm. there. I did. <laughs> oh, you know, and, and that's part of the benefit. I can do maintenance. I can do operations. I can do SCADA. And I try to teach all my staff, the more you know, the more valuable you become, right? Yep. If you can, right. if you know how to do the lab test, then you don't really need to do them. You just need to see the results. Right. Yeah. You know, it's funny because one of the things, and Jim, you probably agree with me, we had a, actually all the major plants that I've ever worked at, we've always had a, some kind of an upset. City of Salisbury, we had a contractor and project manager do exactly what you said. It wasn't skater, but they went out. We had trickling filters, 40 foot high trickling filters, and they forgot to close the valve. And when they forgot to close the valve, I got an alarm that said, hey, you got high level, you got water coming out of everywhere, coming out the top of your uh, trickling filter that's 40 foot high in the air. I said, oh, wow, okay. So I'm rushing in and the project manager and contractors rushing in and the project manager decides he wants to go over to the trickling filter and just inadvertently open up the valve. Uh, you got 40 foot of head flowing yeah. through. He got these, washed away, didn't he? Uh, well, he washed the whole entire plant away. Oh, we my. ended up flooding oh. out the entire plant, blew manholes out the ground, everything, you name it. I would never forget, I was standing, there's a picture circulating around here somewhere of me standing in that middle of the actual plant, waist deep in wastewater, because I had to actually put put on some waders and find another one of the valves to help relieve pressure <laughs> and close the, close it. But it was is a there contract. enough, I would say, is there enough PPE for those kind of days? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't, you know what? I will tell you. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah. You know what? <laughs> Sometimes you have to do it without PPE because it's whatever it takes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, it's nice if you have the waiters, but sometimes, I mean, I've had yeah. I've had waiters on where the water's coming up and over, and now you're walking around with waiters full of wastewater. Yeah. I've lost Both boots and ponds. Yeah. I've I've we've been I've been blasted in the face with digested sludge raw. Oh, oh yeah. I, I would uh, oh. get a stuck check valve, and you got to get it shut. Because the pumps are still, I mean, it's, it's, I, I was, I was working on an airlift pump one time and, and it was clogged down at the bottom. So I went over and I grabbed a, a regular air compressor for like for jackhammers. And so I put a valve on it, a long pipe on it. So I'm sitting there and I, oh, I cracked the valve, you know, it's starting to bubble and I'm like, Ooh, I think I'm starting to do something. So I sat there and I just slapped the valve. And as soon as I slapped that valve, that column of water came up and hit me right in the face. Yep. And I was sitting there and I was laughing. I walked over to my boss's office. I said, I think I need to go home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a go home. Day. Yeah, that's a go home. Day. Yeah. You know, you know what? It's it's unanimous. We've all been splashed. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah. the that's the initiation into all of oh, it. Oh, yeah. Right? That's what I've heard. Well, that's, well, it also reinforces you taking all of your shots. And, yeah. well, <laughs> and, and if you can't do it, you need to probably go over on the water side because a lot of people in wastewater can switch over to water, but it's very yeah. rare to see people go from the water side into the wastewater side. As we like to say, we're on the dark side. Well, because yes. from, from the water side, they, they don't really have to look at biology at all. It's, it's just physical chemical. Pretty right. much. 
Right. Yeah. There's a there's a lot of art to the wastewater, and then there's a lot of just getting it done. Yeah. Yep. I think it is. Yeah. There is an art to it. Absolutely. You know, a lot of us have to. I mean, for Illinois, it takes you a minimum of seven years to get the highest license. You know, you spend as much time learning about your craft as a doctor does before you get your the highest license, which I think well, before, is really good. Right. Other states before they let you take it. That is correct. Right. But other states like even Arizona, you can have the highest license in three years. And, and a lot of people have that misconception about licenses. If you have a license, then you can run a plant. Uh, that's probably that's the furthest true. thing from the truth, right? It takes years to understand how, right. the, how all the processes work. Agree. Absolutely. That's, I, I've, I've seen many people with licenses and God bless their heart. <laughs> but, 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 but they didn't have the experience at all you know and then, but you know what none of us yeah. did at one time everybody's got to get it you know everybody's yeah. got the experience yeah that's right but, yeah but but a lot of people and, and this goes for like city management you know they're like well i can hire anybody i had a city manager tell me that one time well i can hire anybody with a grade one license and i'm like hey do you remember you know this one individual it took him 17 tries to pass his test and would you like him to run his facility? Because he has a grade one. So from what you're saying, he could run it. And he goes, no. I said, exactly. That's my point. Not everybody can, can be a supervisor. And it's nothing bad about them. It's just that they just don't have that multiple thinking or whatever managers have that, that set them apart from the operating staff. Does that, does that make sense? Right. Maybe, maybe uh, to be able to prioritize, maybe they're not good at prioritizing because I know a Correct. lot of it's prioritizing. Absolutely. Or organization. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. But and if you don't mind me just going back real quick, Heather, to answer yeah. your question, you know, I think the, the idea is and all of it is to take your time when you're, when, when you're faced with one of the things I used to tell my guys and I still approach it this way, you know, you're, you're, you're more apt to whenever there's an emergency or upset that takes place, you want to react like right now. You want to hurry up and fix it. And I've seen operators, even when I was first starting off, I would get out there and I would start running around. And I remember one of the older guys, one of the old heads, he actually stopped me and said, what are you running for? You ain't going to stop it from flooding by running to it. <laughs> you know, and I said, you know, you're right. I'm just going to take my time strategically think through it so that we can make sure that we optimize the time spent and make sure everyone's getting it done safely and efficiently. Because ultimately, mm -hmm. that's really the key is that, you know, in order to properly fix an upset is to make sure that no one, everyone goes home at the end of the shift, everyone goes home at the end of the day, and that it's done safely and properly, and that you're not spinning your wheels. Because like I said, when I first started, I was one of those guys where, you know, wait a minute, I could have did this in the beginning of it and solved the problem, but instead I took the long way around because I wasn't thinking because I just was trying to just hurry up and fix the problem instead of think through the problem. So I would recommend that and say that that's one of the things that uh, for anyone who's listening, that that's, that's the key. I, I agree, Jason. I'll tell you, here's what I've seen. I agree with that totally. And I've seen over the years, a lot of problems that go misdiagnosed. There's the problems there but it's misdiagnosed and then the solution is misdiagnosed. And I've seen, I've seen over the years, literally millions of dollars spent that were, that was not the right solution <laughs> to the problem. And well, I'll, I'll bet you, you have Jim, haven't you? Oh, oh yeah. I, the waste, <laughs> the waste of money because we rush into a decision or yep. 
or and I agree with Jason too, but what I usually tell people is if you see me running, you should probably run along with me because something <laughs> really, really bad is about to happen behind us. Yeah. And, and, and behind you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Behind you. Yeah. Behind, yeah, behind you. you. Get, get out of yeah. here. Yeah, we, yeah. we need to go right now. <laughs> and again, it's it's trying to teach people that, you know, wastewater, and sometimes I, I compare it to driving the Titanic. You can see the iceberg in front of you and you start cutting that wheel, but sometimes you just can't turn it fast enough yeah. and trying to get that point across because, you know, whenever we're talking about mixed liquor and, and, and waste rates and, and changing around your biology, you know, if you have a 14 day detention time, then you got to wait at least 14 days before you'll see that change that you just made. That takes time and patience. And, and a lot of people just don't have that patience at the beginning, but you gain it over the years. I, you know, I, I was I was one of those people. I, I did gain it. But in the beginning, I was impatient. I, I wanted things to happen. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and especially in the you know, I've worked at a lot of industrial sites and the mistakes that I've seen there where things were misdiagnosed and they're coming in with the solutions and all this money spent. And it really, it was just misdiagnosed from the beginning. So that's what I always warn everybody about. If you've got a problem and you're looking for a solution and, and okay, we're going to build this or do this. I said, you, you, you really need to have people there. Doesn't have to be me, but you need to have somebody there or some bodies who can really go in there and, and look at this, look at all the data, look at the problems and give a correct diagnosis of the problem because if it is if it's incorrect the solution is going to be incorrect and expensive and then you're going to then after you spend all that money you're going to go okay yeah we still have the problem and then of course the excuses are going to fly but then you have to go back and do it again and i don't like having to do anything again i, I just no. get it done the first time Right. Our motto is exactly that. Let's do it right. Let's do it right the first time. And yep. the other thing I like to tell my staff is we're smarter as a group than we are as individuals. And that's everybody from the newest hire to the person yep. with the most experience. Because just because you've been doing this for as long as I have, I still find, and it's one of the things I enjoy most about this job, is I still learn new things almost every day. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to me, that's fun, right? You come to work and you go, huh. Hey. Never knew that before. Right. And then, you know what? New people have new perspectives and they, you know, they might have, a, you know, I, I've learned from people who work for me for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And, 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 yeah. and back in the old days, your boss would never listen to you. You know, if you were the new guy, you didn't know anything. You sit there and shut up and just listen. And I think that over the years has started to change. Same thing with, you know, back whenever I first started, the consultant would come in and tell you, well, this is what you're going to do. Well, I don't think that's what we should do. And they go, no, no, we're the smart ones. You're going to do what we tell you to do. And then it doesn't work. And then they would come back and talk to you again. But but that has changed over the years to where it's more of a teamwork partnership thing. And, and again, being able to make sure that everybody understands that in order for a project to succeed, the consultant has to be on board. The owner has to be on board. The staff has to be on board. The contractor has to be on board. The manufacturer has to be on board and their vendor rep. Because if anybody falls out of that, more than likely your project's going to fail because something's going to get missed. Yep. You know, I, I once had a boss who I was trying to tell him what I thought. 
you know, I was, I'd probably been in the business five or six years. I was trying, and he says, he says, you're not paid to think <laughs> you're paid to do You know? And I'm just like, I thought I didn't, I couldn't say anything because he was my boss, but I, I thought to myself, you are the worst example of a boss <laughs> I've ever known in my life. But what I, what I did with, because I've had similar comments from my past, I yeah. learned what not to say to my staff, right? Yeah. So now I would never say anything like that to my staff. No. I took all the bad stuff and I said, never do that. And then I took the good stuff because everybody has good points and bad points in management, yep. right? You take yep. those good points and you try to do it better. And as I'm teaching my staff, I'm like, there's things that I still do wrong. I know that I'm not perfect. But, you know, learn from my mistakes and build on what I'm teaching you. And let's press forward as well. When we've, we're working as a team and we're, you know, solving problems and issues and stuff like that, say something non-catastrophic happens, like a, a hit of ammonia or something just comes down the pipe. How do you start looking at that? Well, one of the things I will, I will say is that, you know, whenever we face with any type of situation like that, we just start asking questions. First question is, is what, what's the flows today? What happened today? You know, a lot of times we ask who's dumping on us and or, or we go into and start essentially just narrowing it down and trying to figure out, is it something that came in through the headworks? Did we get this? Is it something that's happening after the fact? Does it have anything to do with our side streams? So we start looking at all the, the perspective areas that we can possibly have any type of spikes in our ammonia. And then we start looking at our process in itself, such as there are blowers running properly. Are we getting enough air? Are we getting enough treatment? Is there anything inhibiting that air? And mm -hmm. so just start looking at all the different characteristics throughout the biological and mechanical process and trying to try to nail it down. If you have SCADA, looking at your trends, because your SCADA will tell you a lot as well. Your SCADA will tell you when your blowers came on, when they turned off, how long they were on. And it might be something that some of those times where we've had spikes like that in plants I've ran and I've gone in and looked and found, oh, wait a minute that blower when they did maintenance on that blower yesterday they mm -hmm. had it down for x amount of time and or they never turned it back on auto and uh, that may cause a potential issue or did they or did they decant the anaerobic digester which is extremely high in ammonia and feed Absolutely. it back to you yeah. know feed it back into you know did they did they just send it all back at once or did they feed it back slowly or right absolutely that's when you put your detective hat on right you guys know that nothing happens right there was nothing <laughs> that changed and that's usually the first answer right no everything's the same as it used to be yep. and then you go down and you start looking at the trends and start taking a walk around and you go no oh, no when they I say nothing forget, happens think, that goes in one ear not the other i, I yeah. don't even pay attention to that I know better. But I agree with both of them. I, you have to you have to put on your detective hat and you're looking at everything mm -hmm. until you can narrow it down to the to the source and whether the source is outside the facility. You know, you had a, a vendor or there was an accident and they dumped a bunch of fertilizer on the road and the fire department flushed it all down into the sewer because I've seen that. Yeah, before. that's a good one. Yeah. Or operator joe over there forgot to turn the blower back on and left it off all night that could be another reason i mean and an operator error is part of it and how you deal with that and how you you move on from that i think is the more important thing if operator joe forgot to on, turn on the bloater then then maybe you need to put something in SCADA so that if the blowers none of the blowers are on then somebody getting called also and you know you know what else happens I've had it happen to me. Sometimes we never find out what caused it. We never find out. <laughs> Just, that, that's more often than not. 
Yeah. Yeah. Because if, yeah. if, if, if it came from outside, you know, it's been in the system for 24 hours or, right. you know, between 12 and 24 hours. So trying to track it back is nearly impossible. But I mean, we've had meth labs and you see higher ammonia is coming out of meth labs. So and, yep. and we actually traced one back in one of the towns that I worked at and 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 had the DEA come in and take care of the meth lab because you see higher ammonias from them. So, yeah, it, there's so many variables. It's so hard to tell. So then you, you know, you think, well, OK, you know, it'd be nice if I could educate the public and teach them not what not to put down the drains. But then I found gosh all i'm doing is teaching them how to mess with me <laughs> so, so you can't that do is that. true yeah you can't because gosh if they get mad at you or something or whatever you know then they could dump whatever down the drain it's 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 difficult i was given a tour one time i think that it was like fifth grader so one of the moms was with me and she's like can i dump my motor oil down the drain and i'm like no I'm like, well, she goes, what happens if I do? I'm like, more than likely, I won't see anything from your, you know, five quarts of motor oil. The problem is, is you're going to tell two friends and they're going to tell two friends and then you're going to kill my biology. And then the plant's not going to work. And then it's going to smell real bad. and It's going to cost a lot of money to fix it because you're a resident of this town. You're going to be end up footing the bill for that. And she went, oh, I get it now. And she was, and she was happy with the explanation, right? Because five quarts of oil and four MGD, yeah, more than likely we're not even going to know it's there. But the problem is, is somebody tells their friends, right? Yeah, that's and right. So on and so forth. Have you ever had to deal with emulsified oil? That is the worst thing in the world. Uh, it, it's, yeah, it, I, it's, it's, I had a foam one time that looked like mayonnaise. It was the most I, amazing thing. Because, yeah, you know, typically- I've had to deal with foam- or surfactants. Typically oil will come to the surface. You know, you'll see it on the surface right there and you can kind of deal with the skim. But when it emulsifies into the water, then it gets in there and it coats your whole mixed liquor, suspended solid. If, if you have an activated sludge plant, it's just gonna coat everything. And then your bugs are having trouble breathing and respirating, your DO will go up. <laughs> you'll have plenty of DO. Emulsified oil, I had that in a beef plant one time. And yep. it was extremely difficult. It was just, it was, it was, it was worse than filamentous bacteria. It was just, just awful. So you've had that, Heather? Yes, actually, I did. I, I, it was actually for a beef processing plant. Yep. You know, looking at their biology underneath, you could just see the, the droplets of oil. Yeah. And you know, for us, we're like, okay, we're gonna yeah. apply biostimulant. We're gonna apply apply something with you know a bit of a surfactant to just kind of break that oil apart. Yeah. So that you can your biology can even approach it. Yeah, because your biology but, gets gets coated, doesn't it? Is that what happened? It just it does. Yep. Oh yeah. Well, and like I said, the foam was like was like mayonnaise. Yep. And it coated everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jason, did you have one before? Yeah, I've never de dealt with that. I've dealt with some other things. I actually ran uh, a facility that I actually ran the Fort Meade utility uh, for mm -hmm. about three years. And uh, we dealt with NSA and they had a heavy paper. So instead of like just throwing away and shredding their stuff, they actually hit it with acid and emulsified it. So pretty much it was oh. their own paper pulping plant pretty much on the, on the fort. And uh, that came straight to us. So we, what we would get was a, a massive amount of acid and white water was what we would call it. And, and uh, essentially we would have to deal with that 
all that fiber and all the oils and the acid that they used in that. So we ended up putting in a pretty much an equalization basin because we mm-hmm. just couldn't handle it. And uh, we had to, we had to, you know, introduce it into the plant um, slowly. very slowly. Yeah, you know, Jason, that's, that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, and ultimately, before American Water had taken over that particular installation, they never did anything about it. They just let it come into the plant. And uh, so we we had to come up with on the fly, once I had taken it over, um, how we were going to deal with that. And so we came up with a plan where we put a turbidity meter in the, in the headworks. And whenever we our turbidity went up, past a certain mark, it opened up an automatic valve into our equalization basin, gave us an alarm, and we opened up the uh, EQ and, and sent it all there because they would not tell us when they were sending it. <laughs> good for you. I mean, nice that you came up with a solution like that, though. That's good. Yeah. 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 And so ultimately, you know, that's what we ended up doing and then just introducing it into the plant because essentially it overloaded the primary clarifier to the point to where we just were, we, we couldn't do anything. And I mean, it was so thick that... Yeah, our DO was non-existent. We weren't getting yeah. nitrification at all. We we were we were it was just it was just aerating. You know, sludge. sometimes that's the answer. Sometimes this foreign stuff that's what it, it's going to be dumped. It's part of the process. But gosh, if if you can do what you did there to where okay, can you guys just dump a little bit at a time instead of all at once? I mean, I, I think most plants can take a lot. As long as it's done in moderation, you know, if it's trickled in slowly over time, instead of just batch, batch dump yeah. or something. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's a big tool to, to use is, is, you know, storing it and then just letting it come in there nice and slow can make all the difference. Yeah. And so, you know, any plant that I actually even go to, we were talking about O&Ms or reading the O&M when you first get to a plant, I think it was Jim who said that earlier, you know, I always encourage folks, even when I teach class and stuff like, you know, the first thing you want to do is look at your permit. Then you want to look at your actual characteristics of what what's in your community. And then you want to look at your mechanical, what, what your own manual and see what the plant was built for and see if uh-huh. all those things match up. And if all those things match up, then, you know, you should have the tools you need to kind of, you know, finagle things or to to make it make it work for you and so that's what i did you know i did that with fort Meade. i did that even with the town of florence when i worked with them um, i remember coming in talking about foam from earlier jim i remember coming in on my first day and walking in there they have an sbr plant uh which is sequence batch reactors and coming in and seeing foam it was a windy day and seeing foam fly off the back of the tanks yeah you know immediately i, I knew what the that. problem was uh, but i had to do research you know we found that you know, the plant was designed for 3.5 million gallons. They only had 0.7 coming in, but they filled up 3 million, 3.5 million gallons worth of tankage. So obviously, you know what the problem was. You know, they didn't have enough food to uh, feed all the uh, microorganisms they had and along with Diana. But the point is that no one knew. You ask, hey, just like Jim said, you know, when was the last mixed liquor you took? Uh, we take one once a month. Oh, <laughs> and wow. did you realize you had to take one for each one of your reactors because they're essentially you know, separate wastewater plants. And yeah. so, you know, just, just the little things here and there, man, that a lot of times operators who aren't trained to think about these things don't don't think about it. They just try to get through the day. You know, while we're talking about it, how do you guys usually handle like some of the big upsets I see in a lot of uh, facilities is nitrification, denitrification. You like you have it one day and then you don't. Being that mm-hmm. I live in a college town, we have the students come and go like, 
and and we know whenever they come and go and, and one of my operators and i we can't remember which one of us came up with well the plant really likes pizza and beer whenever the students are here and whenever they leave we get broccoli and kale and the plant's really not as happy whenever it's getting broccoli and kale so so we try to anticipate that and we actually have an extra carbon source because mm-hmm. you know our bugs are set up for pizza and beer and now broccoli and kale's coming we have to add a little bit more carbon back into it until it back adjust back until they go so christmas break thanksgiving break are tough because they're not gone for very long and we don't see too many upsets there but summertime uh-huh. whenever they go on their you know not after after spring break and after graduation after graduation you know there's two or three months and then we have to prep it back the other way whenever they're we're getting them to come back. So it's it's really a real challenge. And I've never worked at a plant that had in a college town before. So that was a, a, something that was different that I had to learn. And again, it was fun at the time. And it took us about two or three years to kind of figure out, okay, we knew right away it was the students. But we also had that the the dorms would get cleaned after they left. So they would go in and oh, new and, and all of a sudden, all of our biology would die. And we, again, we had that last yeah. year during COVID, when it, during yeah. you know, one of the first startups. And they, they dumped so much, and it wasn't just them, it was everybody with all the hand sanitizers and you know antibacterials. That stuff hit the mm-hmm. plant. And it was funny because I had done a microbiology exam that we sent off to somebody the week before and everything was beautiful. So we sent one out after he did it we blew apart 50% of our biology. He goes, what did you guys do? And I'm like, I didn't do anything. But the only thing we could testify to was the antibacterials and, and, you know, all the alcohol cleaners coming into the plant. Cause it was, I had the, the same thing happen to me. Exact same yeah. thing. It just, people went nuts during COVID, man. They were just cleaning like, <laughs> but, but, but you know what? Also, you know, I, I had a, I had a plant in a town where we had a, we had an amusement park there, six flags over mid America. And of course, when, when the summer rolled around, that park would open up. Our flow would go up like an extra 200,000 gallons a day because of this park. And maybe it wasn't too uh-huh. It might have only been 100. But, you know, that, that was kind of challenging. But what was e- even more than that, prior to it opening for the summer, they would open it just on the weekends, like for maybe a month. So you go Monday through Friday with this much flow. And then Saturday and Sunday was just like, so it's like, okay, now I got to. I got to change the settings on this plant to accommodate the extra flow that's going to come in for the next two days. And then come Monday, I got to go back to the other way. Because as, as we all know, you have no control over what's coming in, right? You can only control your process, correct? Correct. Right. Well, and that's why I related to driving the Titanic, right? <laughs> you see it's coming, but there's only so much you can do to change that change your direction right that's right yeah jason did did your membership see that covid impact as well yeah well we didn't get a lot of calls about it but we heard about it and so you know we actually rural water we actually do contract ops as well for uh-huh. for some small communities who don't necessarily have the help right now and um one of them has a restaurant there and uh tortilla flat and so they had oh, yeah. some issues with them because of the issue was is that they were having to do extensive cleaning and because it's not a real big plant you know when they were cleaning this stuff out and and uh sanitizing it it was going straight to the plant and killing off their uh their uh, population so 
yeah, we've seen it. We actually had to work through it and um, mm-hmm. come up with some creative ideas with some different types of uh, cleaners. And and we actually have a recommended cleaner list that we actually put on our website. Uh, oh, that's a good idea. That that just were a little bit more friendly towards. Um, wastewater treatment plants and uh still got the it, job done that should not have quad ammonia on it because quad ammonia, oh no quad what quad ammonia no, no is quats. horrible you know in a, in a large plant you can take some cleaners coming in there so you have a lot of dilution but on those small little plants it doesn't take much and i'm you found that out it doesn't take much because i've got a lot of, you know we have about 50 utilities that we run and a lot of them are small but boy, if somebody just get, gets a little overzealous with the cleaning or something like that, I mean, you come in there, I mean, you can leave it on a Friday and it's, you got a nice brown chocolate mixed liquor suspended solids. You come back in on Monday and it's clear. <laughs> yeah. They have wiped it out. That's what's nice about having a larger facility where you have a lot more dilution. I mean, you could still have that problem if, if enough is dumped, but those little package plants, they just get, they get wiped out. Nailed. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Our plant, we have actually Flagstaff has two. So the smaller plant blew out about 50% of its biology. The bigger plant that, that's an IFAS only lost about 20 to 25%. So we think that because of the IFAS and the little pasta wheels that we're growing the nitrifiers on, oh, we yeah. think that saved us at the other plant because the other we had to shut down. We, we pretty much had to rebuild our whole biology at the other plant. Wow. I worked with a, a prison where the prisoners were in charge of the sanitizers and they utilized a lot, shall we say? <laughs> and we asked, you know, you, you've got to change out what you're using and restrict the use. So they were able to restrict the use and then they changed it. And I see the SDS and it's quad ammonia, it's chlorine and it's hydrogen peroxide. <laughs> all, all, good, all, all, all good stuff for the treatment plant. Yeah, all good it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's like, it's like, okay, we're bug farmers out of, we're trying to grow bugs and you're killing them. <laughs> Basically. Oh yeah. And they were, they were 80% of the flow and they were telling the town there was no way it was them that was causing the issues. And so, you know, part of my work was to help them trend that data and help them recover their biology afterwards. But I'm like, see here, this is where COVID hit. This is exactly where the sanitizer started. And this is when the worst ones started because yeah, they lose the the whole biology. It matters what people use. So I love the idea of a list, Jason. That's amazing. Note to self. I'll ask for that. Well, at least we started contacting, you know, not only the the college that's in town, but also the elementary schools, the high schools, anybody Mm -hmm. who had lots of, a lot of people who were going to use up lots of cleaner and going, hey, you need to slow down a little bit and try not to dump it all down the drain. Because again, those kind of upsets really kill you. And mm-hmm. I worked at another facility where they made cakes. So whenever they were done at the end of the day, they would just hose everything down. So flour, sugar, everything that you need to make a cake. Shortening. So all that. Be- yeah. so, so BODs were coming in at like 2,500. And we're like, yeah, we can't handle that. So we ended up actually going over to the company and talking with the employees and going, hey, if you don't start dry cleaning this, and, and we'd already talked to management. So then we had the management goes, well, can we can talk to our employees. So we went out and talked to them and go, you know, eventually we're going to have to shut you down unless you start complying with what we're asking you to do because you're upsetting the treatment plant. 
and you can't do that. Yeah. And I'll say this, Jim, to to, to, the, to the point of what you're saying, going in and dealing with folks that are within your system, the pre-treatment process is critical to us as operators and managers and making sure our plan is going well and, and can be used as a resource. So one story I'll give, and I'll make it really quick, but one story was out when I was in Salisbury, we were, I was running the superintendent there and I was running the uh, plant and we were going through an upgrade. And part of the upgrade was we had to do enhanced nutrient removal. So we, here in Arizona, we got like, I think our most places are a total nitrogen of 10 milligrams per liter that they have to put out into the system. Out there because of the Chesapeake Bay and the watersheds and what have you, we were at a total nitrogen of three. So long story short, we needed BOD to make sure that, you know, we were getting our, our final denitrification and our nit- what we call denitrification filters at the end there. And uh, we didn't have enough food. By the time it got to the end of the plant, we didn't have enough food. So we actually mm-hmm. went out to Pepsi and said, so we had Pepsi, Coca-Cola, Purdue chicken. Um, all of these were heavy in BOD, but we actually partnered up with Pepsi and had them actually send us their syrup and bring it over to us. Instead of sending it down our actual collection system, they were actually trucking it over to our plant and putting it into our tanks. And we were using that as an additional carbon source to source at the end of our plant. Lots of and sugar. So just, <laughs> lots of sugar. So just, just, a, just a little tidbit out there that, you know, understanding what's in your system, understanding and having partnerships and things of that nature with some of these folks, you know, it, it, it's, it's good to know so that you can use it to your advantage as well. And I completely agree. I've done the same thing. You guys are sharing great lessons learned. This is awesome. This is what we wanted. Do you have any comments as well on, say, like sludge handling other than, hey, everyone loves a good sludge press? Well, you you better handle it or, or, or it's going to get handled on its own. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it'll handle you. <laughs> That's right. It'll handle you. It'll handle you. Here's what I will say. Here in Arizona, it's not as big as an issue as it should be, as it well, how do I word this? Well, on the well, East Coast, it's well, a big well, issue. It's a, it's a big issue because of not having the ability to take it to the landfill. So a lot of them guys are coming up with alternative ways to get rid of their sludge, whether it's anaerobic digesters or dryers, getting it down to a smaller form. Here in Arizona, what I've seen, and Jim, you can kind of chime in on this too, is what I've seen is that because we have more of a footprint, we don't we're not under the gun as much as others for sludge removal. And the only reason why people, what I've found, the only reason why people sludge is out of control within their plants is because they don't understand why. Or or they're trying to save money on the private side because they don't want to haul sludge because that's a big cost. Um, yeah. Well, and, and for Northern Arizona, there's no beneficial reuse for sludge. So we have a dedicated land disposal on site that we can use. But whenever I was in Chicago, we were hauling sludge. But the problem with the Chicago sludge was we always picked up radium from the groundwater. And then they had a, a radium limit on the fields. So that's going to become an issue over the next 50 years for that area. And then whenever I lived out in Maryland, I worked for a biosolids company. And we used to haul it all over the place. But the problem mm-hmm. is, is a lot of people go not in my backyard, we don't want it. Even though it was for sod farms or feed crop farms, that the smell would just turn them off from from those solids. And again, it's it's a challenge all across the country, but for us up here in Northern Arizona, our choices are our dedicated land disposal that we're using right now or going to the landfill. You know, people talk about, well, you can make compost with it. Yeah, but nobody's gonna use the compost. So eventually, what do you do with the compost? 
So it's a challenge, I think, that we're going to be looking for into the future on how yeah. to do it. Yeah, and 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 making it, and, and not just how to do it, but how to sell it. Like, yeah, like getting people to buy into it. And like that's that's the biggest hump for that I've seen. Right down to even moving us into like water, like our reclaimed water, like Pima County, they take their wastewater, they run it through a reverse osmosis system, and they bottle it. Um, we've drank it at golf tournaments and at conferences and things of that nature. And we made beer. You know, yeah, we yeah. made beer with it. So, <laughs> you know, the, the, big, the big idea. Bullet. 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 Yep. Well, <laughs> I, always, but all, I always tell all the new hires, okay, the first thing we're going to do here, let's go down here and look at this effluent. And, and uh, I got the Kool-Aid. You bring the, <laughs> you bring the cups. And they look but, at me oh like, oh, gosh. <laughs> but I think, I, I think our biggest issue is public perception, right? Yeah. yeah. No matter what we do, we look at it, and, and the public looks at us as, ooh, Nobody wants to, we don't, we flush and we forget, right? And, and but they don't understand the critical need that we fill. And, and I've talked with lots of environmentalists over my career and they're like, well, we should get rid of the treatment plants. And I'm like, well, what do you propose doing? Well, we'll just spray it back on the ground. And I'm like, you know, that's not a really good idea because we're going to bring back typhoid and cholera unless you want to wipe out the population. And, and, yep. and again, I talked to one environmentalist and she goes, I want all the water the way it was before people were here. I said, I got a great solution. We just start killing people. But we're going to start with the environmentalists who want us to kill all the people. And then we'll stop whenever you're all gone. <laughs> because there's no way to get the water back to that quality without with the people still being here. I mean, we talk about CECs and people are like, oh, my God, there's CECs and, and compounds of emerging concern. And, and, but the, what they don't realize is in order for you to get one cup of coffee, you have to drink an Olympic swimming pool size of water, which you can't drink in your lifetime to get that one cup of coffee or one cup or one Prozac. And, and, but because our technology has come so far in being able to measure those lower levels and treatment capacity can get there, but it's really, really expensive. And, and again, trying to teach people about that, I think, is, is one of the things we really need to start working on it and it's one thing that we're as wastewater workers we're really not good at yeah yeah, yeah. and and you know in, in in the big picture of things then we're doing it right now you know hopefully people are hearing what we're saying and understanding that you know this isn't something that is fly by night and it just happens on its own it's, it takes work it takes thinking through strategically thinking through a lot of these challenges and takes a, a lot of skills and make sure it happens and it's a good thing that to to be involved in you know i, I was telling one of my children today, I was like, yeah, she was like, she was like, you're, all, you're always working. You have meetings. I said, you know, it's great when you love what you do, though, you know, and so. Oh, I, and, uh, and I'm right there with you, Jason. I love what I do. I have a passion for what I do and I'm proud of what I do. I mean, as I sit there and people talk to me, well, hey, you know, you're throwing that aluminum can in, in, in the waste container because I can't find a recycling one. And I'm like, but I've recycled quite a bit in my career. I mean, it's pretty much a billion gallons a year for the last 30-some years. So right. that's, a lot, that's a lot of recycling. I think I've done my part to help save the planet. Yep. Yeah. I agree with you on the passion. And what I think that's what keeps me in the industry is that uh, overall people care you know, that are in the industry. Even if we're not appreciated by you know, the external public. We know we're doing a good job. We know we're making a difference, and you know we, we know we're trying. Yes, uh, absolutely. To, to make the world better. Are there any like lessons learned? Like, okay, rules 
to live by kind of thing to kind of close this discussion out. We talked about it earlier, but I think learning to be patient and learning your craft and try not to rush through the, those vital years. Whenever you're new and young in the, the industry, I think you need to take extra time to, to really study. I know whenever I first started out, I was in the Air Force and I was on a midnight shift and I started to doze off. And, and one of the gentlemen that I was working with threw a book at me and said, if you were the NOM, you'd be dead. And he goes, there's no sleeping on shift. And I went, okay. And that's whenever I first started drinking coffee. It was more cream and sugar than it was coffee, but I was still drinking coffee. But I started reading, you know, the Sacramento courts. And, and every uh, night, yeah. whenever he and, I was, he and I was working, I would read the Sacramento course. So I was laying that foundation. And, and some of it still sticks with me today. You know, the little guy in the book and, hey, remember this and blah, 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 blah. So I think, you know, getting that education and understanding that it takes years to understand this job. And as soon as you go to a new plant, pretty much everything that you learned at the last plant is not going to help you out in the new plant. Okay. Yeah. Hey, and Dave? Yeah. Amen to the Sacramento courses. I've taken all of those and they are excellent. They, I, gosh, learned so much from those and along with the, the practical experience, but you know, there's a lot of things I would think that I could think of as far as what things to do differently, but I don't know. I'll have, to, I'll have to ponder on that a while, I guess. Okay. Jason, how about you? Uh, well, I guess it's not necessarily do differently for me. It was, I wish someone would have continued to, not wish, but it's what I would encourage people to do. And it's what, what's helped me the most in my career is that is stay teachable, stay yeah. open-minded. Um, don't get to a, one of the things that even as supervisors, you know, we, We've gotten to a point to where we go, we have openings and we go to hire somebody and we get these people who have these grade threes and grade fours and they'll come in and they'll be telling you everything they did at their old plant and just how much like they, they take pride in how much they know. But, you know, the one thing that I look out for, you know, for myself and for them is that are you teachable? Because if you're not, then you know, used to me. And uh, I think that this isn't just for wastewater, it's just a life lesson in general that you have to stay teachable, you have to stay open minded because we're constantly learning each and every day. I mean, I've seen a lot and been through a lot and done a lot of different things, but you know, every day is different. Every day I've seen something, every day I'm learning. Um, each plant that I go to, each operator that I talk to, they have different and cool ways of doing things that are more efficient, that are that, that, that optimize things. And you know, you take the, the meat and leave the bones per se. And, and keep it moving, but staying teachable and, and staying open-minded to, you know, all things. And so, you know, if I was to say lessons learned, that's the lesson that I'm constantly learning every day is I don't know it all. And, um, and you know, I strive to continue just to allow myself to grow in that fashion. I, I have to agree with you, Jason, because mine was always stay curious. You know, why? Why does it work? Yeah. And, and, I, I, <laughs> and I agree with both of you. I think that and, and stay humble, you know, and, and, mm. and because you are going to learn stuff from people who yep. might have less experience from you. Yep. And that's okay. doesn't matter where it comes from. You're still learning. Yep. I, I have one thing I'd like to add. <laughs> if, All right, Dave. if you're having a bad day, just go down to the outfall and look at that beautiful crystal clear water going out. And just remember, that's really what it's all about. <laughs> Very true. That's it. Yep. It'll make you feel have that Zen moment. It'll make you feel better. I love it. I got a question for both guys. Okay. 
So, and whoever wants to answer first. So let's just say you're having a problem in your plant and you're, you're looking at the data and some of the data is conflicting. There's conflicting data, it's conflicting with, with itself and you're having a problem. In the final analysis, what do you typically go with when, you're gonna, when, you, when you need to make a change? If the data doesn't tell me in, in any specific direction, yeah, because sometimes the data will conflict with it. With You're it. right. Oh. Then I go to the old school method of what Jason was talking about before. You go to the gut. You know, you're sitting there, you're bingo, going. Bingo, bingo. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Your gut instincts. Yeah, you're, you've been, after you do this for so long, you just kind of look at something and go, I know the data is telling me to increase the waste, but you know what? I think I really need to decrease the waste because, it, and again, I've worked at treatment plants where as you increase the waste, the the number the mixed liquor goes up and as you decrease the waste the mixed liquor goes down it's crazy so yep. it, it's not it's not always you have to use that intuition that you gain over time yep yeah you know it's it's understanding when you have an outlier and when you don't really and that's when you rely on your gut because like you know i've been in those situations where the data did not align with what i was seeing physically and following my gut i was successful because sometimes again you may have old equipment not necessarily old equipment but old sample valves something may have been something that caused the issue you just look for it and figure it out and then it may be something as simple as one like i said i learned this probably about four or five years ago where my 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 water going out of my plant was crystal clear crystal clear it was beautiful guys and i got a spike in my bod I sent my sample out to the lab and they said, hey, your BOD was like 60 going out of the plant. And I said, well, what's my TSS? They said, oh, it was five. <laughs> so, ah, okay. Yeah. And then I, then I said it was an outlier. I sent that to ADEQ and did some further research. And then I went out there after I found that out and looked and saw that. I said, you know what? I know exactly what this is. This is because my guys did not clean the sample tube on the composite sampler. And it had algae and all kinds of stuff growing inside of it. And guess what that stuff went to when it went into that sample bottle. Mm -hmm. So that's what we found that's caused our BOD to spike. We Absolutely. You know what? Your, your sample is only going to be as good as, as the container it's put into and, and, and the, the apparatus that's collecting it. And all the sample piping. Yeah, I've had the same problem. I think we all have where yeah. that that doesn't make any sense. And then you go, oh, and sometimes it's difficult to move that sampling tube because, you know, they ran it through PVC pipe and they put not pull elbows, but regular elbows in it. So mm -hmm. as you're pulling to pull that tube back out, you got to, you know, tie a string to it so that you can pull it back through the next time. And then it never fails that eventually the string pops off and then you're trying to run a fish tape through or something else trying to get that sample line back in. Yep. Yeah. So, so yeah, man, been there, man. And uh, some we still are trying to figure out to this day and others, you know, we were fortunate enough to find the uh, culprit and yep. make a change. Yep. Cool. You know, I, I have really enjoyed what we've talked about today. It's been a, a lot. So I really appreciate your guys' time. I want to also move over into the Wanda's Water tidbit. And this might actually be a surprise to you guys. It is on the water side. This is the part of the podcast where we celebrate the uh, something we find unusual or even brilliant about water. Have you gentlemen heard that there are two liquid phases for, for water? I have not. 
I don't think so. Mm-mm. Most of the time, we we there's the normal liquid that you know we we see every day. It's you know hopefully we've all showered today. Maybe had that cup of coffee, uh, possibly washed dishes or clothes. That's the phase of water we we know and understand. But there's another phase that happens at really low temperatures, and we're talking about you know negative forty five degrees C. Mm. And 2,400 times the normal atmospheric pressure. So basically, if you're not like a nerdy scientist, you're not going to see this <laughs> this phase very often. But what's interesting is when you get down that cold and that high pressure, there are two liquid phases, and it's like oil and water. And each one of these phases have their own density. And basically, what it is is the heavier one, that tetrahedral pattern for water. It's actually trying to take on an extra water molecule. Hmm. Ah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you guys look at the water molecules all the time, right? Absolutely. Well, <laughs> and, and to go along to go along with your story, I was watching something about deep sea oceans one time, and there's uh-huh. there's water within the water, and it's a different type of water, and, and I think that might be because it's. I mean, it's way down deep like in the Marianas Trench or something like that but it's yeah. but it's crazy and there's a whole different life forms that live in that water it's crazy well and that that is exactly what we're talking about especially when there's like so practically this could explain why some ice is denser than others especially when you're looking at you know ice caps uh, glaciers and so forth like that but there's also another substate that I learned about that I was so excited but basically, when you get down even colder, you know, below the 53 degrees Celsius, below uh, or to about a negative 123, water will actually act like glass. Oh, wow. And I'm like, this is the stuff we don't get to see in the normal days, of course. But uh, I'll put the notes and information in the show notes for you guys so you can watch the videos or whatever. But water is weirder than even what we were talking about. I have the feeling there's a lot more that we don't know. And, and that's what I find out about this job. There's more that I don't know than I really do know. And again, that's the beauty of what we do. Gentlemen, I want to sincerely thank you for talking with us today and sharing your lessons learned and, and your wastewater wisdom with us. And really, if you, if you listeners would like to get in touch with these gentlemen, we'll have contact information in the show notes. Please don't call them at 2 a.m. in the morning, though. Yeah, no, don't do that. Oh, I'll be up anyway. Oh, okay. we'll, we'll, we'll call Jim. Yeah, yeah. call Jim. And then I'll call Jason because I know he's still sleeping. Oh, there you go. There you go. Awesomeness. But thank you all for coming and uh, participating in this panel. It's been marvelous. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad spectrum line of biostimulant nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.